welcome once again to Radio TFS. This is Radio TFS number 18, Adopting Team System. I'm Mickey Gousset, and along with me is my cohort in crime, Martin Woodward. Martin, how are you? Doing very good, thanks, Mickey. Very good. It's good to be back home. We've been busy traveling quite a lot lately, haven't we? Yes, we have. You more, you more so than me. What have you been up to? <laughs> oh, wow. So um, we had the MVP Summit um, in March, which was good fun. Nice to see you and nice to see Paul as well. Sadly, Paul can't be with us this afternoon as we're taping this little introduction. So uh, but he'll be back at the next episode. Uh, actually, no, he won't be back at the next episode. But the one after that, hopefully he will be back. And then, um, yeah, MVP Summit, that was great times and, you know, learned a lot about what's coming up and... Um, it was just nice to see all the guys again, you know. It's a bit like being at your wedding reception. There was just so many friends that you hadn't seen for so long that you didn't really have time to spend as much time as you wanted to with everybody. And then after that, I um, where was I? I was in um, Raleigh talking to the TFS team for a few days, which was great fun. They were very good, you know, always good to hang out with them because they're about the only team on the universe that that care about the sort of stuff that i have to deal with during every day you know what i mean so it's nice to actually talk about it if somebody understands what the heck i'm talking about i had a blast at the mvp summit like you said it was great to see all the other mvps and, and get to talk to people on the product team for those of you i'm plugging martin right now for his tech ed talk you need to go go watch it Listening to him talk, A, he's got a cool accent, be, me being from the South, I think it's cool. And and B, he really knows what he's talking about. He was sitting there at one point in time telling us all about the internal workings of Team Foundation Server, and my jaw just kind of dropped. So there's your plug, Martin. So <laughs> Hey, we should probably plug as well. Thank you. We should probably plug as well. Um, I'm, I'm, in fact, Team System MVP of the year for 2009. Yes, you are. I forgot about, about that? that. I have bling. Have I'm sh- looking at my belt buckle as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> can, can you can you put the belt buckle as the, like the podcast? Oh, yeah, we'll make that the album art. Stuff. Definitely, that'll be great. Definitely. <laughs> yes, Martin so, was was nominated MVP of the of the Team System MVP of the year. We, we we it was an internal voting process between all of us MVPs and, and some of the people at Microsoft, and and he ranked right up there at the top, and it's very well deserved. So it was you know, nice to be rec- it was nice to be recognised, especially as it was by the other MVPs, if you know what I mean. Because I work a lot with a product group, you know, during the day. So sometimes I kind of feel like a cheat, you know, when it comes to being an MVP because I know those guys anyway. But um, yeah, it's nice that the other MVPs did that. So I was quite touched. I was also on um, this week in Channel Nine. If you've ever seen that, it's a video podcast from uh, the Channel Nine guys, Dan Fernandez and Brian Keller. Um, so I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But I was I was on that one episode as well while I was in uh, Redmond. So all good fun. We've been busy, busy. Well, I've been the same. I went to the MVP summit, and now I've I've been punching away at my tech ed presentation because I'm presenting as well, just like Martin at tech ed. How, this year, how, so. how is the uh, preparation going? You seem to be further oh, ahead than I am. Well, I don't know. You know, considering I have a deadline of next week to have the first draft finished, so it's it's coming along pretty well. I've been actually soliciting feedback from the community. So if you go to Team System Rocks and go to my blog at Team System Rocks, then you'll see where I've been posting my outline and my thoughts and where I'm headed. I'm about to start posting some sample videos of screencasts I've done. So I would love community feedback. Again, I want this to be a presentation y'all are interested in. I'm talking about web testing. So come give me your feedback so I can tailor the talk to be just like you want it to be. If you also, if you have any feedback you want to give us here at Radio TFS, you can email us at radiotfs at gmail.com. Yeah, should we introduce the show then and explain what's going on? Let's do that. Well, Martin 
had the opportunity to interview another Team System MVP while we were at the MVP Summit. Now, he borrowed some equipment from Michael Ruminer, so we want to put a big shout out and thanks to Michael for letting us use this equipment. And he caught up with Steve Borg. Stephen Borg is the founder of Northwest Cadence, a gold-certified Microsoft partner focused on Visual Studio Team System. He was selected as a Visual Studio Team System MVP in the first round back in 2005 and has been a Team System MVP ever since. He's a little A agile and big on understanding what makes successful development teams tick. If you're coming out to TechEd, be sure to head out a day early for his pre-con covering five ways real companies have gotten the most out of Team System. You can also visit his blog at blog.nwcadence.com to learn more. We're going to go back in time now <laughs> to hear Martin interview Steve. Hi, Steve. How are you doing? Very good. Thank you very much, Martin. Thank you for having me over to your house here. Yes. My pleasure. Beautiful. So we should explain, we've been, um, we've been with Microsoft all week talking about Team System at the MVP Summit. So did you have a good time? Fantastic time. It's- yeah. It, just a fire hose of information from yeah. from the team, and you just learn an awful lot. Uh huh. It's good to see all the guys as well, you know, because like with Mickey and Paul and people, I don't get to see them. You know, we haven't seen them at these like some conferences and stuff. So. That's right. That's right. So um, I thought uh, this evening we could have a quick chat about adopting Team System. I know you've helped you know a lot of people get the most out of Team System, and one of the problems a lot of people I talk to have, you know, they get this huge, you know, they get a DVD or two DVDs from Microsoft. They go plop on the desk and they're like, well, where do I start now? You know, and there's so, there's so much information on the web, but it's all really like low level detail. So yeah. How do you um, go about what, what sort of things should people look at first, you know, when the DVD lands and how should they get started? Team systems are tough implementation. It really is. It has a more, uh, it has a, a large impact on an organization, and a lot of people don't think of it as having an impact. Mm. They think, yeah, replacement for source safe. Let's slap <laughs> that on a server and hit hit it with version control. We'll start using version control. Um, but that normally leads to uh, dissatisfaction, and mm. certainly not leveraging the value of Team System. So what is the value of team system, do you think? It's the collaboration piece. Mm -hmm. It's the bringing a team together on more than just version control, bringing in the work items, bug tracking, all the stuff your listeners, I'm sure, are very well familiar with. But more importantly than that, starting to gather the metrics around the software development process and then exposing those metrics to the team leads, to management, even to the senior C-level managers so that they can start to make the decisions to improve the process. Okay. To make it better. It's this iterative process. Mm-hmm. For folks in an agile shop, it's especially important. Yes. They go through a retrospective and what are we going to do next? And Team Systems flexible enough that you make some modifications and move on to the next thing. Uh-huh. You can guide your process as you go. But you can't do that without understanding what it is you're trying to accomplish or yeah. where you've been and if the last change you made was successful. So obviously, um, you know, if team foundation server collecting collecting all that data about you and you know it gets fed into uh, the the database and then pushed up through reporting and you know for the data warehouse and things that obviously needs to run for some a certain time at least an iteration or two before you can start getting any any data to report on that's very true very true and that's one of those there's a gap mm. uh, people adopt team system and they they see the you know the flashy reports that they can get they see the 
a lot of the benefits that they're going to get out of it, but they're not going to see those in their own organization for several months. Right. And, and, and iteration at the very minimum, that's just to track down kind of the tactical changes you're going to make. It still doesn't mention anything about the strategic changes that you can make in an organization. Okay. And that takes six to nine months right, wow. to gather that. Yeah, data. definitely. I know it's something that's always, you never see anyone really demoing the, the report stuff properly because it's really hard because you need real data, you know what I mean, for it to make sense. And it only makes sense to you. It doesn't make sense to any of your friends. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it's all... After, well, what do people need to adopt first and what, what, what sort of things should they start using so they can start collecting some of this data and putting it into Team Foundation? So the, the base foundational piece that people really need to do is version control, yeah. work item tracking, and automated builds. Yeah. That's the basically the tripod, the okay. three things that you can then build from. Right. Um, if an organization just puts in version control... Mm-hmm. They really miss out on the tracking. Yeah, it's just it's just, just why, why are you paying for TFS if you you know if that's all you need? So yeah, it's, exactly. It's so much more. Exactly. And if they're just doing work items, uh, again, they're all they're getting is a bug tracking system. Yeah. And that uh, bug tracking system doesn't really give you the information that you really need to start making decisions. It needs mm-hmm. to be tied together with version control. Yeah. And a lot of people I see adopt those two. Okay. Um, there's a there's a strong community out there. Most people understand when they bring in Team System, those are the two clearest pieces that they're mm-hmm. going to implement. Mm-hmm. But a lot of folks neglect the automated build. Yeah. And Team Builds there, it's a it's a fantastic tool. And I'm not really hung up on the tool that people mm-hmm. use to do the automated builds, um, as long as they kick off a team build. Yeah. And the reason for that is that team build, as it goes out and gets the data, starts doing things like analyzing code churn, understanding what code is going into that build, and more importantly, tying it back to the work items. Yeah. So it, one of the kickers that I get that just I think is amazing is I can run a build at the end of a day and say, what bug fixes went into that build? What did people work on? What requirements were people working on? What tasks did they accomplish? And I can see that right in the build report. It's a fantastic tool, but you need that third piece, that automated It really completes piece. the feedback loop. It really does. Um, I think that's the beginning. Really. Yeah, I think one of the problems with the build stuff, though, is that a lot of people are really afraid of their build systems. You know, there's a whole, there's a whole group of people out there who who don't have any automated build. You know, they press F6 in Visual Studio, they copy the assemblies and they throw it down on a on a file share somewhere. Sure. You know? That's definitely one category of people we, we've all seen. Absolutely. And then you've got another category of people that maybe have like some sort of batch scripts and things to mm-hmm. kind of stick some stuff together. And they've got some build automation. And you've got other people that have got quite sophisticated build systems. But but build systems are always some like rude Goldbergian <laughs> contraption of things that just hit together. And everyone's a little bit frightened of it because it was all done by that guy with a really good neck beard that like moved on and, you know, went to go and work somewhere. And everyone's not quite sure how it works. And no, they're always slightly fragile. Mm-hmm. People miss out the build because they're frightened of it, I, I believe. I think you're right. Um, and the other part is even with team build, mm. there's things you have to know. You have to learn MS build for yes. one thing. If you're going to extend it in any meaningful way, especially to do a test deployment and possibly run some of your uh, build automation tests, you know, build verification tests against it. And if, you, if you're going to do more of the advanced things, you have to learn this new language. It's mm. like picking up C sharp, except it's this XML ish 
based language with no IntelliSense and you know <laughs> uh, you no code to- <laughs> editor. I was talking to the MS Build team this morning and giving them a hard time. So. <laughs> I would certainly love to see that be a lot cleaner. Yeah. Yeah, you get some IntelliSense. Yes. If you drag in the XSD into the right directory and, and Visual yeah. Studio. But in, in all cases, it's difficult. Um, but, and here's what I think is, is where people miss out. It doesn't, the benefits of automated build cross the entire team. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't take the entire team to get the benefits. You all stand around, draw straws, one guy gets the short one. <laughs> And he, Usually me. <laughs> <laughs> and off they go. And they learn team build and they automate the build process. Uh, to be fair, it's not a giant process. If you're doing something really tricky, like um, building and deploying out to SkyTap or building and deploying into your virtual infrastructure and kind of doing more complicated things, that clearly is going to take longer. Uh, but a few days maybe a week gets you some very solid build scripts with automated deployments into into your test environment or into your dev environment where you can then run some some mm. tests so what where do you think people should start if they want them to learn team build oh that, there's a fantastic book by william bartholomew and syed hashimi yeah, gotta be gotta be a must-have read. Place. It's a must-have read. Um, the book's been out since January 8th, January 7th, January 8th. I had my copy on pre-order, and I've already, <laughs> I've already have coffee stains, uh, bent <laughs> pages. Everything's really well used. Me, me and William uh, were both with the MS Build team this morning. He, he just got back from being at the Build Lab in Microsoft, and um, he was walking around the building, and he saw copies of his own book, and he was like, wow, that's <laughs> freaky. And they, were, and they were like, this is required reading. And they were like, hang on, is that the same William Barthel? <laughs> so it's cool. It, it is. It was the first book on MS Build the, yeah. that, that, really, that really took a strong full-featured look, as well as including an incredible amount of recipes. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus, there's tfsbuild.com. Is that the, yeah, tfsbuild.com. That's tfsbuild.com. Um, and I'm always popping out there looking for recipes, because yeah. people post some great recipes, snippets of things uh-huh. of MS Build that, that work. Um, so that's probably enough, yeah, probably enough about Build. It's important. Yeah. And it completes that feedback loop. It does. It does. So once you've got the builds automated, the work items and version control being tracked in TFS. Yep. You've invested in automating your builds, again, using team build, because that's when you complete the feedback loop. I mean, you know, I wrote the cruise control bits and mm-hmm. the, the cruise control.net bits, and they're all very well and good because, you know, they allow you to move your build process over easily. But like you say, they don't complete the feedback loop. It's really only with team build that you get that feedback loop completed. So okay. then then what do we do? What's next? At that point, you can start to mature your implementation. And by mature, I mean looking at your actual process that you're using, um, reflecting on it at the end of an iteration, looking at the reports, looking at the uh, data, the feedback you're getting and saying, what more do we want? Or what less do we want? Yeah. Um, it, frankly, cutting things out of your process is sometimes much more difficult than adding things in, but can be far more important. Uh, Always easy to convince a developer about cutting things out, not easy a project manager. <laughs> right, right, right. So that's where you start looking at uh, some of those modifications that you really thought you might want to make, but weren't critical when you first did an implementation. Uh, another thing on implementation I probably should mention is y- you don't need to do all your tailoring up front. A lot of people 
run into this problem. They see TFS, they see how easy it is to configure and tailor, and then they go to town. Yeah. Let's go crazy. And changes here, changes there. We're going to map it exactly to our process. Oh, and we're going to add a scrum process on top of it. And they get this huge <laughs> scope creep of what they want to do, and they never right. get finished. Yeah. Six months later, they're still in their trial deployment of TFS, and they haven't got their even their, their process template down yet. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a mistake. I think it's better to start with a simpler process template. I like the Conchango template mm -hmm. for Scrum. I like uh, the CMMI template, just okay. scale it back a little bit. Um, the Agile template can work. Then uh, there's lots of other templates out yes. there. And grab a template that's kind of close, plug it in, and work with it. See how it feels. And you're not going to like it. You're going to make changes. Yeah. But make changes with the knowledge of having worked in it first for at least a couple of weeks yeah. rather than do it right at the get-go, right up front. It's that big design up front brought right into the team system implementation. Exactly. If you, you try to do it too much. Yeah, you know, you know. You never know what you need until you've tried it for a bit. And that's the same with any agile software development as well. Yeah. You, you sort of try it and actually, you know, the thing we really needed, we don't really need at all. <laughs> what we do need is a widget over here or something. Yeah, exactly. You mentioned the Kachango templates and mm -hmm. the MSF templates and things. One of the, one of the uh, criticisms I hear about, I don't have much experience with the Kachango template at all. One, one of the criticisms I hear about it is that it can be quite difficult to customize. Have you found that? Or? Yes. Okay. I have. Uh, it's not so difficult to add things. Right. Uh, it's relatively straightforward to add things. Uh, however, uh, subtracting things is much more difficult. Okay. Um, and that's because the Conchango template goes beyond just the team system implementation, and they've added some of their own business logic, some some things to handle roll-ups. So okay. you get so you get nice hierarchies and roll-ups, and things that you wouldn't necessarily get a team system out of the box until right. 2010. Um, so it does make it more difficult. I think that's one of its strengths Okay, uh, because it lets people, it, it takes away that initial desire to make lots and lots of changes. Right. And even though it's more complex to change, if you have a good reason, yeah. you can still make that change. So one of the things we had some big conversations about this week was um, prescriptive guidance versus more open guidance. Mm -hmm. You know, Microsoft's traditionally been very open. Um, and that's Microsoft style, you know, ah, oh, just use what you want. We'll be cool. You know, whereas, um, the Kachango template is certainly much more prescriptive from what I understand of it. Do you think that's a good thing? It's so hard to tell. And it, obviously it depends on, it depends on the company that you're implementing or that's working, uh, that to try to build it in. If it doesn't fit, it, it's not a good thing. Yeah. Um, then you really want that pick and choose and have this wide open thing to really bring it into your process. But for firms that are adopting team system and don't have that concrete process, I firmly believe that they're more likely to hit success if they have one that is more prescriptive rather than less. And it's, you don't get into that long process of analysis paralysis and mm. actually figuring out what your process is um, and trying to define it up front. And that prescription lets developers know, really, what am I supposed to be doing right now? And now that I've finished coding, what do I do right now? Where do I transition these states? And it, it takes away the complexity. It's this irony. You're adding rules, and yet you're freeing the developers, uh, freeing them to work on the code that they really need to work on, do the things they need to do, not 
try to figure out where they should be in this process. Yeah. So I, I am, I'm a big fan of prescriptive guidance. Well, and I don't know, I think maybe it's a dirty little secret of software development, but I've worked for some, you know, reasonably big companies and I work for quite a lot of companies. We've never really had a good process. We've never, you know, we've maybe got a process manual sat in a corner somewhere, but nobody really follows it and everyone feels a bit guilty about it. Is that what you see as well? Always. Okay. It's not just me then. No, not just you. (laughs) I I can't think of uh, a single company that has had a process template that's in a book or in a three ring binder where the developers had really follow it Mm. on a day to day basis. Uh, we've done a ton of assessments at looking at organizations and trying to determine what process fits well, what of their process fits well with team system and what doesn't kind of a gap analysis is team system going to work for them. And invariably I'll ask to see the dusty three ring binder and I'll just flip open a page and just ask somebody, does this ever happen? And Nine times out of 10, they'll say no. And then the 10% of the time, they'll just laugh and say, well, occasionally if Mike over there is doing it, you know, there's the one guy who knows it. But that's when they get into big problems in terms of external process audits, isn't it? Because the external process audit to be in it, like, um, I mean, in the UK, ISO 9001 is very popular and it's like CMMI external audits and things like that. They come in and they look at your documented process and ask for evidence of the process being followed, don't they? They absolutely do. And that's where team system can help dramatically. I mean, this is, I'm getting all excited because this is, (laughs) we've seen this in companies, especially companies adopting CMMI. Um, They, they need to abide by this process. And CMMI doesn't say you have to have this overwhelmingly difficult process. That's just waterfall and top down driven. It just says you have to have a process. And you have to follow that process. You can just put in the Kachango Scrum template, looking for CMMI certification, walk through it. it you've got most of your proof that it's actually there. Um, the CMMI process template that Microsoft put together, it gets you through, is it 19 of the 23? Is it 23, 25 mm. of the, uh, either way. It gets you through a good chunk of what you need to reach CMMI compliance level three. Um, That's the thing. An argument I've had with many customers is, um, they've gone for a more, a more strict process like the CMMI one, MSF CMMI, thinking that's the process they need if they need CMMI compliance. And I always like, no, you can have anything. Please put an agile one in just as long as it's written down and you follow it and you can prove that you follow it and you try and continually improve on it. Then you'll get your CMMI compliance. Exactly. I'm, I'm now, I'm not a CMMI auditor. Yeah. So I can't talk to a CMMI auditor's position and, and, it depends on which auditor you Indeed. get as well, too. But it seems to me that if you're doing a CMMI audit, you need to have at least some points where people have released software to be able to effectively look back. If you're in a waterfallish one-year delivery cycle and you want at least two of those to look back to see if you can qualify for a CMMI level, you're looking at two years between initiation of the project to the when you can bring in your external auditors. Picking something like the Scrum template iterate through that much more rapidly, you have real concrete evidence of your success or failure that you can hand directly to the auditor and say, we have met these requirements. We've built the requirements. We've met our goals. We've delivered our software on time and with the right scope, uh, which is kind of one of the CMMI Mm. core things. It doesn't necessarily that you've delivered the right software, but the software that you promised to build and in the time you promised to build it. But you can get that. 
So um, you've you've come in, you've um, you're starting to improve your process, um, and I've found I don't know about you, but once you start to because work items are so tightly integrated with source control, and um, the feedback loop is there, you actually find the developers that would ignore the ring binder. You actually find them like suggesting like improvements to the process you know and wanting and almost almost overwhelming the team in terms of how they want things changed and improved and to better reflect how they could work better yeah you get real feedback like Mm -hmm. that you hit a retrospective and you come back jeff levinson's been running into this one of our 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 alm practice and he hits a retrospective and people will say we really want to add this some of our clients and they it's a really beautiful thing to see mm. because that team is asking themselves, we want more metrics. And why do we want more metrics? Because if we can show you this, maybe you don't have to come ask us. Yes. You know, we'll, we'll elevate that. Or they start to see the value, that transparency, and really want to show off in certain cases. Let's put in another little thing to measure. Uh, I think as well, with because you're – the process is becoming tangible now. It's no longer just some idea in a book. It's a it's a system in front of them. We're all developers we're dealing with here. So they can feel it and touch and feel the process and they can fix things that are on computers. And by fi- you know, that's how they can get in and fix it. They know it's fixable. Whereas when it's just a book and random things you're supposed to do, developers don't really, can't really grab that eye as much, I think. I, I totally agree. Yeah, okay. I, I've run through, I'd say I did the, oh, I forget the name of the process catalyst or something with one of the organizations I used to work with. It was 26 binders. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I have no idea. I wrote down and I, I sat down and wrote code. Uh, I never had neither the time nor the inclination to go pick those up. And I certainly wasn't given when I was hired mm-hmm. the months of training necessary to understand 26 binders worth of process. Okay. 26 big binders. <laughs> okay. So moving on, You've, you're improving the processes. You've got work items, you know, work items, resource control, improving process. What's next? What should people start thinking about there? The release strategy. Uh-huh. I, in my opinion, yeah. it, it's a, it's a, it, once you're at this point, it's the retrospectives that really define where you go really define which directions your company should take and in improving your process. But one of the ones I commonly find is release process, understanding how that release should take place. Now, when we talked about source control right up front, one of the things that I do like to define right away is a branching strategy, a reasonable branching strategy that can get people into TFS working effectively, especially if they're migrating from a, a, a version control system that doesn't support branching like effectively. Source safe. Like source safe. <laughs> exactly. So if you're moving from source safe, it really is important to make a clean, a clean break to understand that branching works. First of all, that you don't need, you don't need a gold, a silver and a dev repository or some crazy thing. You can have a production test and dev environment and all of those environments can be tied to branches. And one of the things I've found quite a lot is people are really frightened of branching. Um, and I always at least suggest that people at least create a main so that yeah. they can start, you know, then later when they've gained more confidence, they can at least look at branching and they're in a good position. How do you educate them into what branch, you know, the power of branching and what, what, what does it solve? It, and again, depending on the firm yeah. uh, that's working with it, but it's, it's primary reason is isolation. 
What do you need to isolate? Um, if you're running a very tight agile shop, you may just run on main. You know, you hit the end of an iteration, you have potentially shippable code and that's it. You don't actually maybe need a test branch. So you might just have a main branch. Most organizations, however, need the isolation between the, the constant churn that's going on in the development branch and what the testers are working on. So to show them, to, to talk about that power, it's often talking about that isolation. What can we do to keep the testers happy without having this things is the sand shifting underneath them basically. But I don't think they should choose really complex branching strategies. And this is the thing that gets me. It's mm -hmm. again, the power. Mm -hmm. uh, Developers go crazy with a new toy. Exactly. It's a new toy. Let's do branches. Yeah. And I've seen a shop that released websites. Now websites lend themselves to simple branching structures <laughs> because you don't have this maintenance over time of all of these various uh, old versions. You don't have to maintain yep. version one. There's only one website. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't go to version... And I don't you don't go, go to, to version four of Google. No, exactly. <laughs> you know exactly what they have now. Mm -hmm. And they just evolve that website over time. But I've seen them create branching structures on a team of 10 where they had... Not more, Google we mean, but... No, not Google. <laughs> exactly. People who do websites. So people who so do websites. Go on, you say. But people who have more branches than they have developers. Huh? And it, exactly. It doesn't make sense to me. But here's where they get caught. It's powerful. They see, oh, but what if, and they come up with this weird scenario out of the blue. What if we had deployed to test and we'd started developing and test needed to roll back, but we couldn't roll back with the rollback on test because there was a bug, you know, just these crazy things. So then they come up with this convoluted branching strategy. I, I, if it makes sense to have a convoluted branching strategy, have a convoluted branching strategy. But, but the alarm so bell rarely, the alarm bell was when you ringing. said, what if? Exactly. Exactly. As soon as I hear what if, I say, run an iteration, when, run two iterations, yeah, run when, three. What if? Yeah, exactly. And what you find is people run three iterations. They've never run into that problem. Uh, then they run another and they run another. And pretty soon it's just one of those things. It's a risk. We're kind of tight tucked somewhere. We might run into this. But and as long as they've got at least... Um, as long as they've got the basics, they're working in a main branch, you know, they've not just checked everything under the team project, exactly. then at least they can develop a branching strategy that fits as they go along. Exactly. If you go and check out the branching, uh, branching guidance on CodePlex, mm -hmm. you can take a look at what they have on CodePlex and really get a pretty firm understanding of what things are available to you. They make recommendations there that I think probably hit about 80% maybe more of folks. Yeah, there are a few edge cases that really do, really do justify a more complicated branching strategy. But you know when you, you know when you need them, sort of. Yes. Say. You know when you need them because they've had them in the past. Yeah. If they're migrating from source safe, they don't need a complicated branching strategy. Okay. Just right. period. Well, I've worked, you know, I worked in like, before I worked for TeamPrize, you know, I had them real jobs where, you know, I, <laughs> I, I actually did business software and stuff day to day. I think I used branches twice in my career before doing Team Prize. And one, fun enough, was a website, but it was actually one where we had, it was such a big, um, e-commerce platform. You know, it was a large e-commerce company that there were lots of release trains that were coming along. And so, you know, you needed to build some features in isolation. And it's the key when you need to work in isolation and then deliver it into the main site. You know, that's when you need to branch in. That is a perfect example. That's a perfect example of where you need isolation. 
it's that feature branch. You know, mm. you've got your main and you're maybe delivering on a two week cycle or maybe you're delivering on a month cycle. If you have a feature that's going to cross or several releases or several iterations, uh, often pull a branch. Cause you don't want it appearing half baked halfway exactly. through. You know, you want to be able to, you don't, you want to not hold up a periodic release. You know, you don't want to release, but you don't want to release half features yet. So. Exactly. One of one of the assessments we did, uh, one of our one of our uh, clients had released a an ability to to rent cars um, in 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 conjunction with flights, and uh, they hadn't actually implemented the car rental piece, ah. but the UI had made it into the release. So <clears throat> they got a lot of angry calls. I couldn't rent my car, et cetera. Et cetera. Support load goes up means you can't actually do any development because the support loads increase. Exactly. So it's one of those things where it can cost. It can mm-hmm. be a big deal. A branch, as my boss is fond of saying, Eric, think a branch is like a puppy. It needs, it needs care and attention. You know, it can be lovely to cuddle, but it does need a certain <laughs> a degree of commitment to that branch because branches rarely die, you know. Exactly. That's a very, very apt analogy. And, and Eric would know a good chunk about branches, I'm sure. <laughs> so what's next? What else do we need to worry about? Um, time box iterations. I just want to talk about those okay. for a moment. I think that a lot of people do quote unquote agile development. And mm-hmm. I'm not going to stand up here and, and I'm not a big A agilist. Yes. I, I think that, that, uh, I, I won't say that every good practice is agile. Every bad practice is waterfall. Yeah. I, I think that's ridiculous. Yeah. <clears throat> but one of the key fundamental pieces is development and iterations and not nine month iterations. <laughs> you know, that it, you lose something at that point. Uh, bringing it into a time box iteration where you're forced to chunk your work you're doing into something that's two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. I get nervous anything above six weeks. I can I can see a six-week iteration depending on some of the complexity complexities I've seen, but my preference is towards the shorter. But you get a lot out of an iterative development. One of the key pieces is that retrospective. Mm-hmm. You know, being able to say, well, what did we do wrong? And the other thing is iterations tend to elevate very quickly the poor software practices in your team. And a lot of teams don't like that and they're afraid of it. My recommendation is don't, don't be afraid of that. You do have to get management buy-in because a lot of things are going to be embarrassing. You promise to hit something and you're not going to. In your first release, I don't care if you're Scrum, I don't care if you're XP, I I don't care. Your first iteration is going to suck. It's just not going to come out right. But you're being honest about but it. But you're being okay. honest about it. Exactly. And the what is wrong is being elevated. And the second iteration is probably going to fail as well. Third iteration, you're probably going to start getting a lot of things right. And by the fourth and fifth iteration, that transparency is starting to pay off. And I can't stress it enough. Transparency. This has nothing to do with team system. This yeah, is just, just transparency. Common sense. Just common sense. But what you miss when you're not transparent is the developer who's stuck mm. and it could be your lead brilliant genius developer, but everybody gets stuck. Yeah. And sometimes it just takes a second eyeball, a second set of eyeballs to really solve that problem. I'm a developer. I've been around a developer. I'm not, you know, the most junior developer in the world. And yet just, just the other week we were, we were getting team prize three, two done, you know, we, we finished it up now. And um, there was a particular feature 
that and I was working on and working on and I'd came to like, you know, the stand up and I came one day and I was like, yeah, you know, there's this bit and I'm a bit stuck on this bit and yeah, but hopefully I'm hoping to get through. And then I found myself saying the same thing for the next two days <laughs> and it got to that third day and I was like, you know what? I'm not, I'm thrashing. You know, you, you, you realize it yourself. I, I look back. I said the same thing the past three days. I'm thrashing on this. I'm just going to put this down. I'm going to walk away. I'm going to come back. Me and a, a colleague, we're going to work on a little different feature for the next two days. And then I'm going to come back to this fresh. And I'm going to pair on it with somebody else. And I'm going to go through. And then it came back around the next week. We picked up the feature and I explained where I was going. And now, as I was explaining it to the guy, I was like, this feature's done. You know, <laughs> it doesn't need anything else doing to it. What am I worried about? You know, we try, this is finished. And we, you know, we, we both realized that actually all we needed to do was just a quick little bit change to the UI and it was finished. And yeah, I could have spent a whole week just worrying about that and not getting anywhere if, if we hadn't had the daily standups and the transparency of the progress. And it just embarrasses you it, into admitting you stuck. It does. And, and that embarrassment is a good thing in an agile team. It's people aren't being punished mm -hmm. and measured as individuals. In an agile, you know, there, there's always this, well, how do I know who to give bonuses to? If yeah, I don't yeah. check this is why you, number of lines, that's why you don't day. let those guys into the standups. Exactly. Exactly. Keep them out of the standups. And the other part is that transparency that starts to get this really good culture where people are willing to admit, I don't know how to do this. Yeah. I, I don't know. And then they learn. And for an organization, I always want to bring things to the business value. The business value of these iterations, the business value of transparency is the people who don't know learn. Yeah. They pair. You yeah. paired. You didn't even have to. But when you paired and we're just explaining that to someone, all of a sudden, click. Mm -hmm. I understood. You know, it, I, I grabbed it and I, I can grok it and pull those things. Together. And not only that, my colleague understands intimately the level of detail of that code because we went through it together. And now, you know, if, if it has to be maintained, I'm over here enjoying myself in lovely Seattle, that my colleague's not afraid of going into that code because they've been through it with me at the line by line level and understand not just the code, but the, the reasoning, the, the reasoning behind the code, you know, the intent of that code. Exactly. And what intent we might've missed. If a bug came up, we like, Oh yeah, we forgot about that case. Yeah. I remember that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so. Perfect. Okay. Another thing, just with quickly with iterations, I think that people often um, overlook just the nature of an iteration means that you have to, you are forced to break complicated problems down into small, biteable chunks. And just by doing that alone, it's a winner, you know? <laughs> there is absolutely, I, I just can't come up with a bad thing about time box iterations. Yeah. The only thing that people um, possibly complain about is the fact that they will have um, multiple release processes, say, and that because they're trying to release every iteration, um, they have a certain, you know, there's a certain tax in a release. Yeah. So what would you say there, you know, what, how do people address that? Is that why you don't like iterations to be like a week long or what, you know? I, I think that the tax thing, and I, I hear it often as a, as a, a drawback to fix time box iterations, this release. Well, we've, if we're going to do a release, there's a lot of things we need to do. There is a small tax around just showing what you have a demo. And I think, I'm willing to accept that small tax. I don't necessarily believe that at the end of every iteration, you actually have to ship product. Uh, I'm not 
that night. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and, but a lot of people believe when they first hear agile, potentially shippable means we're out the door. You know, oh, we can't ship a new version of Word every two weeks. That would be crazy. Well, and customers yeah. can't, you know, customers cannot accept re- releases that no. frequently. They would just freak out. Absolutely not. But it's potentially shippable. So you may not actually go through the whole work of packaging it up. And I've, again, it's my small A Agilist piece here. I think that it's okay if you're doing these iterations and at the end of the third iteration, someone says, great. Let's do a shipment that we don't necessarily have to take those binaries and drop them on. We'll take one more iteration to do some functional testing, to do some, you know, some further integration testing, to do some exploratory testing and to make absolutely certain we're ready to roll. Now, I don't think that's a problem. I, no. again, I, it's my small a agile. I think that's fine. Yeah. It's, a, it's just one well, plus. Sense. Um, from a, again, cause I, you know, I used to, again, when I had a real job, I would be like an architect and stuff. And so, um, I found, but by encouraging my team to work in small iterations, again, not too small, but small enough, they would have to integrate all the time and they would have to package frequently, you know, so they could get into a shippable state. A developer, if they do something more than once, they write a script to do it. <laughs> Developers are inherently lazy. And so it kind of forces that build process to get scripted, which means it's less error prone. Yeah. And less of attacks. Exactly. So, so eventually you're getting less and less and less of attacks okay. as you release. Great. In those, in those frequent iterations. Uh huh. So what else do we need to think about in adopting team system? Oh, one is training. And I, I, I see organizations that adopt team system and they don't do any training. Okay. Adopting team system is not like adopting VSS. It's not like adopting a tool that just plugs straight in. There's a certain amount of understanding of what the whole system does that you really have to grok before you can just work with version control and work items. You have to understand why you're doing it. Why as a developer, why do I have to associate my code with a work item? Doggone it. I just want to code. Don't tell me to associate. Don't tell me to report what I'm doing. I just want to code. But it doesn't mean sending everyone like for a week in Hawaii. Absolutely not. No, no, no. Uh, preferably, you know, somewhere in the, the South Pacific. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, it's not, it's not that big of a deal. Not every developer certainly does not need a week of training. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, there could be a half day, mm-hmm. you know, understand version control, understand work items could be a day. And it really depends on the process that people are adopting. If you're adopting scrum for the very first time in conjunction with a team system deployment, definitely a little more training. It's going to be a three day training. It's going to be a, maybe even four for those developers, but from the team system perspective, they just need to understand the whole system and then understand how they're going to interact with the system. I'm on a, a, a number of, of user groups uh, from Portland and Boise and Seattle and, and on those, those news groups. And then most recently, Twitter, trying to understand mm-hmm. uh, what I hear. This is great because people never Twitter when they're happy. No, rarely. Yeah, rarely. If you Twitter, <laughs> Twitter search <laughs> TFS, it's, exactly. just a, it's, a, it's a mess. Because people will go, ooh, I am happily checking in and associating with the work I exactly. It just doesn't happen. But when I query those people, when I come back, when they, they say, oh, I hate this, I can't do this, nine times out of ten, it's they just don't know that it's available. Exactly. It, it's just not there. Yeah. And this is what gets me about the organizations that they're working for. Did they not – are they not interested in a mm. successful TFS deployment? You can't just roll it out 
throw people at it and then hope it sticks. Yeah. It, it, it might work in a lot of organizations. It does work, but people don't like change. They come from, mm, they come from SourceSafe. <laughs> exactly. They come from SourceSafe and they're screaming, Oh, it doesn't do this. And it's so different than that. If they don't understand why they're doing it and they don't understand the capabilities, a lot of times they complain about things. If the, if it's not formal training, it's mentoring. Get one person who understands it and to work with folks. Uh, do a pilot with TFS too. Mm -hmm. It's one of those things that it might make sense to run one project through first. Get an idea of the process you want to impose, if you will, on the rest of the organization that you've learned and then start to grow that throughout the organization. Well, and plus it gives you time to get used to the tools. I mean, you know, you need a certain time to get used to tooling before you go about embarking on a huge, a huge change to the way you work. Because otherwise you'll associate the pain of changing the way you work with the tooling you know, rather than just using the, taking the tooling out for a spin, you know, and, and just using it to, when I adopted team system, you know, we put source code in it because that was the big win. We were using source safe across a wide area network, would you believe? <laughs> and it <No>. went, <laughs> no, I went, like, I got some stats and on my blog somewhere and it went from like, I get latest would take hours literally hours and this is when no files had changed you know it would take hours right clicking on a folder and waiting for the context menu to appear it would take 10 seconds you know what i mean and then going from that to tfs obviously it paid for itself within a second you know within a minute of it being installed because but we did that first we did this we did source control first we then looked and we were like oh what are these what are these things called work items you know what's this all about and we had a look and went oh we could track some work in this and so we just you know we just put some we just put some tasks in that we were working on and, oh this is interesting yeah this is working this is quite good i can check it in oh yes this is quite nice oh there's different types of tasks you know, there's not just bugs, there's tasks, there's, you know, quality of service requirements, there's user stories, whatever. What are they for? And then you look at the process guidance, you yes, know what I mean? Absolutely. And you start to discover it. And then, and this was all during like the proof of concept phase, you know, because we would have been told team system might be good, you know, and we're like, oh, let's have a look at it. And so once we started playing with it, we then developed a level of sophistication of tools. We then start to explore the processes. And by the time we finished, like it was, um, I think it was a six month long, you know, uh, it was a proper full release, but using this set of tools. By the time we'd finished, we'd established a process that worked in our organization because every organization is different. Right. Every organization needs to customize that process. So, um, yeah, customize it. It worked. We can now then start to roll out these across the different company and different parts of the company have different flavors. And so everybody like kind of tweaks things a bit until you come up with a process that the whole company is happy with and can standardize on. And that's when you can go for things like CMMI compliance, because that's exactly what CMMI compliance is. It's about standardization on processes and rolling things out. You know. Exactly. And, and you bring up one, I think, critical point. That six-month period where your team was working on it, mm. you now, when you're ready to roll out, you have a group of internal champions who, who understand the product, they understand how to work it, they understand it deeply, mm -hmm. and then they can diffuse that knowledge through the organization. There's someone you can call when you're stuck. If, yeah. You know, you pair with code, you can pair with a check-in or a merge. Yes. I, I, Emerges and branches, especially, yeah. you know, especially merges. I need to do a big merge, you know. First time you do a merge, it's a little bit frightening. So you sure. want somebody around just to 
help you out. Okay, so we've got all our data in TFS now. You know, we're, we're managing it. We know how to use the tool. What next? You've done some good talks on reports. I've seen a couple of your sessions on reporting. And it definitely seems an area that you've really, you know, you get, you understand. A lot of people don't. <laughs> it seems to be like this magic art. Um, how would you recommend people get into some of the reporting features? What's a good way of getting involved, you know, the, using it? The first way is just... Look at the cube with Excel. You so what's can, a cube? I don't uh, know what people are frying about fair, it. Fair enough, fair uh-huh. enough. Uh, TFS, uh, I'll just, a quick background yeah, yeah, for yeah. people who may not be, be familiar. TFS does all the transactional things in a group of databases that are transactional style. And then every hour, two hours, it's configurable. It'll pull things into a relational data warehouse, which is a much more normalized store that's looks a lot better. And then from there, it will pull it into a... OLAP structure, an online analytical processing, a, a multidimensional cube. And I think I'll call that the cube. And the cube is reports that where most of the data has already been summarized and everything. So you can point Excel at it. Excel shines at this, as do ProClarity and a bunch of other tools mm. you can get with your MSDN subscription. You can point it at the cube and start dragging and dropping facts and dimensions or measures and dimensions. So you can do crazy things like lines of code. Now, I know you, you can do lines of code by a developer per day. Bad idea. But you can also do things like show me the lines of code in that bug very quickly and just with a couple drag and drops. So I can look at a bug and say, oh, that bug took 250 lines of code to fix. I need to seriously consider testing that a lot, testing that deeply. And if I look at it a little more closely, I might find that wasn't really a bug. That was a somebody trying to slide in a change request as a bug. So I can identify those. So the cube is the first place to go. Um, I am totally lucky. Um, I have uh, someone I work with named Shad Tim, who is insanely brilliant on the the reporting side of the house. So, so it's the SQL Server reporting services. Yes. Stuff. SQL Server reporting services all the way through to understanding the warehouse, understanding okay. how SQL Server reports. So I have to admit, a lot of my talks rely very heavily on the, on the solid work that Shad has done. So, yeah. And it's not that difficult. You need but to you know what you're aiming for. Yes, you have to know what you're looking for. And this is something I was talking with Steve Harmon at the at the Alt.net conference. Yeah. I, and, and there's a there's a a perception that Alt.net people are anti non open source tools. And, and and in some cases it's fair. In some cases it's not fair. Mm. But I think Steve brought a good point, and uh, it was twittered as well. And uh, Steve Harmon's point was, people say TFS is great because it can give you these reports. And I think that's absolutely true. But he says, so what? Who uses those reports? And it's a very valid comment. The reports are only as good as what you do to change your process based on those reports. And if you never look at the reports, you're never going to be able to understand your process enough to make those modifications. Mm -hmm. And I, I sympathize. I've been in organizations, I've seen organizations that just gather all this data and it just ends up in this cube and why they even bother to waste the disk space, I don't know. Mm. But then if you come in, you point a point Excel at it and you can start mining it for some just some common pieces and, of data. And let's face it, project managers love Excel. Uh, yeah. And every- they're, they're the happiest kids in the candy shop. <laughs> exactly. And they understand. Especially with, but especially with data that now makes sense because it's about data about a project that they ran. Yes, exactly. They can come in and say, oh, 
well, look, Martin didn't write hardly any code. What's going on? Wonder why? It's it maybe a smell. It could be a, in this case, it could be a good scent because they can go to go to you and say, "How come you're not writing very much code?" Mm. And you say, "Well, because I'm the senior developer on the team. I don't, don't know if you are, but I'm the senior developer on the team. And what might take one of my other developers four days to write? If they come to me and get some help right up front, it takes them two days to write it. So they've gotten two hours of your time, and it's shaved two days off mm. of the overall thing. And they can start to project managers can start to see that, and then go ask." people about these differences and then really understand the project. And, and this is the difference with TFS and using something like a work breakdown structure in Microsoft project to manage your projects. It's the management thought process. If you only have a giant Gantt chart, you manage the critical path and you're not managing people. You're mm -hmm. managing tasks. Yeah. Martin, you're not done with your task. You're two days late and you're throwing off the critical path. Why? What, what? Why aren't you done? And and just yelling at you more isn't going to help you get it done faster. Whereas in TFS, when a project manager is looking at it, the metrics they get, they already get the status metrics. Mm -hmm. They don't need to go ask you for that. How close are you to being done with it? That's just there. Well, that's a great thing because yeah. now they don't need to spend their time asking all the developers that. They're now free to actually focus on the information that's in there. Yes. And they can find out things. They can come to you and say they things. They can manage. They can manage. Exactly. They can look at the Ooh, actual. Wow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they can really improve the lot of the developers. I, it, this is cheesy and corny, I, but I've seen TFS change the behavior of development shops, change developers who were unhappy to come into work to enjoying the job they do. And that's why I do it. If mm -hmm. I can, it's not all of the shops, but any shop that can really make that transition where the developer goes from always being asked by their project, yeah, hey, are yeah. you done yet? Are we done yet? Are you done yet? And bring that back to where the, the data is just flowing to the project manager and where the project manager comes back and says, instead, is there something I can do to remove a blockage? Can I, can I help you in any way? And, and it just changes that dynamic between the project manager and again, cheesy, but I've seen shops change to where the people are happy. Seems like a worthy endeavor for me. It seems yeah, like, yeah. it seems like I'm in the right business if I can make that happen. Well, we're, we're about running out of time. I'm probably stayed, overstayed my welcome <laughs> in this beautiful house. Is there anything else you want to say before we wrap up? Maybe just an encouragement for people. If you, if you are looking into TFS, if you're thinking about using TFS and haven't yet adopted it, really do look into it. May, run a trial project. Do something. And for those of you who are using it, if you're just using version control, step out. Take the approach you took, mm -hmm. Martin, and, and, and really reach out and add some work items and see if you can throw automated build in there. You know, I, I hesitate. I hesitate to have people install the build server on the TFS box, but if it's the only box you have, I it's won't better tell than no box. it's better than no box. Put it on there, see what, you know, and, and really get those, those three things, those three things. And once you have those, you can start to get the report, start to get valuable data out that you can then show and prove that you're getting a return on your investment, that it's working. Fantastic. That'd be my recommendation. Great. Well, thank you for your time. And we'll see you next time on Radio TFS.